as we enjoy listening to God's word in our own language, I have, I have to admit that these readings are long, but they are powerful and large, so strap yourselves in. The first reading is a Psalm of David. It's Psalm 8, and you'll find it on page 546 in the Church Bible. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place? What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the second reading can be found in Isaiah, chapter 40, which you will find on page 724 in the Church Bibles. Isaiah, chapter 40, beginning to read at verse 1. Comfort for God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. 
You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the spirit of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor are animals or its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and, obey, and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Lord One, the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary 
and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for a minute. Thank you, Des and Maureen, by the way, for reading so beautifully. It's great. Heavenly Father, as we begin a new series looking at who you are, our heartfelt desire of these summer months that for many of us that the scales would fall off our eyes, the image we have of who you are, would be made more clear to us. You would reveal yourself to us much more clearly. Some of the wrong images and the the wrong pictures we have of you would be put to death effectively. And you'd reveal and enlighten us afresh to who you really are. And more than that, Father, that we would get to know you for who you are to a much greater degree. Thank you for the life you bring to us. And Father, I pray that you would enliven us and um, inspire us and draw us closer to you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, last week, uh, for those of you who were here, Lucy Pepiat talked to us on the Trinity. And for those of you who were here, it was a little bit of a brain stretch uh, for, for, for many of us, including myself, who's done a bit of theology. Um, actually to think well and to think rightly and to know who God is is obviously beyond human understanding in one sense, but actually for each one of us, we want to get to know who God is really like. And actually that's what we're going to be spending our summer months looking at, as Daniel prayed and as I said at the beginning. What's God really like? Who is he like? What comes into our heads when I say God? What's the first image that comes into your mind when I say God? Wonder. I wonder what's going through your heads. Is it a good thing? Actually, is it a bit of a good and a bad thing? Is it lots of questions and not many much clarity? Is it a mystery? Is it that classic child who, uh, when they're asked to, in the, in the school, to draw what God was like, just handed back a white sheet of paper? Don't know. God must be big in some form. But why is it so important? Why are we doing this? What's at the heart of uh, what we're doing this summer? Um, some of you will come across a writer who's quite well known in Christian circles. He's been around for quite a while called A.W. Tozer. He's written, he's sort of written a bit of a classic that is one of the books And it's only a small book, uh, um, but this is the introduction that he puts to his book. He puts it this way. He puts it there. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. History will demonstrate, he then goes on to say, that no religion has, had, has got beyond its greatest idea of who God is. He then goes on also to say is this, for example, the biggest question before the church is always God himself. Who is it that's the reason we meet here today? What do we genuinely conceive in our minds deep within us about who God is and what God or who God is like? And what that image of our, we have of who God is and what he's like reveals a huge amount about what we genuinely believe about God. If you, I'd encourage you, we're going to do it over the summer. If you'd like to read, I've got 10 copies of this. Do take, I would love you to spend the summer thinking a little bit more carefully about who is it we think God is. So do take one of those at the end of the service um, if you'd like that. When I was at uh, university, I was at university in York, I came across a chap called John Young who was a, a minister, well, he worked for the church in York, and he wrote a book called Our God is Still Too Small. It was a cry that for many Christians, and I'm talking now to people who, who are Christians in the church, that our image of who God is and who we think God is like is actually the biggest problem we have. That actually we have such a small view of who God is that actually that shapes everything. It was a follow-on to a book by someone called J.B. Phillips who, who wrote a book that said, Your God is too small. And this is what J.B. Phillips said in his book. He said, We shall never want to serve God in our real and secret hearts if he looms in our subconscious mind as an arbitrary dictator or a spoil sport or as one who takes advantage of his position to make us poor mortals feel guilty and afraid. We have not only to be impressed by the size and unlimited power of God, we actually have to be moved to genuine admiration, respect, and affection if we are ever to worship him. I wonder how you feel about that. When we talked at the APCM and said, what do you think our image of God is like? We had six pictures. What is your picture of we're like? What does that say about the God we worship? One of the things that both many of the writers write say about it is this, is that we may be able to say one of two things about God. So, for example, we might be able to say, well, I think God is love. But actually, I'm silent on a whole range of other topics. And actually, our silence can say as much about what it is we're able to say too. And that's why we're going to spend some time thinking a little bit more about it over the summer. This morning, I'm going to start the series just very briefly. They're beautifully read uh, readings this morning, so I'm only just going to fly through bits of what we've got to look at this morning. We're going to look at the fact of God's greatness. And actually, when we think about the word great or greatness, I wonder uh, what comes into your mind. Maybe you think of the, most, the person you consider to be the greatest tenor in all of history, the greatest pianist in all of history. In sport, one of the things that are often people are consumed about is trying to com compare people from generation to generation to generation and say, who is the greatest of all time? We want to know who's the greatest, and obviously the answer was Muhammad Ali, because he said it, but for those of us a little bit younger, that may not be the answer. 
But actually, I'd like you to take uh, a couple of minutes. I'd like to find someone next to you or near to you and ask you to try and think about somebody, some person that you would consider to be great and why. Have a conversation with someone next to you. doesn't have to be a Christian. Anybody, who would you consider to be great and why would you consider them to be great? Okay, can I, I know this is only a short time, can I interrupt you? Uh, would anybody like to venture, anybody they've been prepared to say was great, and to give a reason why they thought they were great? I'm just interested to know who we've got in the room, so to speak. Yeah, okay. I would say Mandela, because... The whole of his life, he fought for equality. He never gave up, even when he was in prison. Um, and that was his goal, and he spent his whole life. Great. Nelson Mandela, that's great. Any others? Usain Bolt, because he was such a great athlete and so wonderful to look at. Usain Bolt, there's quite a lot of agreement about Usain Bolt. Yeah, okay, do you want to? Did you? <laughs> Bernard Mzeki is the greatest one in me. Uh, he was a martyr. So he was killed. He was very great. A very great, who was killed, yep. Okay, so someone who had a great cause and they were prepared even to go to death. Yep, I'll be with you in a second, yep. Nicola Neal, what she's done and what she's talked about, she's very good. Someone who's really inspired you from, from here, yep. Who else have we got? Did you say, did you have your hand up? Someone? Did, oh, okay, okay, Des. <laughs> Greek philosopher Socrates was accused by the Delphic Oracle of being the only one who was wise. When he set out to find out, he was forced to the conclusion that it was because he was the only one who knew he didn't know anything. <laughs> That's it, raise the bar a little bit, yep. Uh, the Queen, because of her exceptional commitment to duty. Okay, the Queen, yep. A couple others, anybody want to venture anybody? <laughs> um, Eric Little, Chariots of Fire. Okay. I'm assuming his faith. Yeah, Eric Little, Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, because he um, put his life um, uh, into the service of the common good of others. Great. Thank you. There, now, there's just a few selections. I'm sure you had some other people, mixture of people who maybe were successful, maybe people who go, w endured through incredible suffering and difficulty, people who were incredibly bright, who had amazing gifts, people who um, 
were very successful in the world's eyes or in some other eyes. All sorts of people. We bestow greatness on others for all sorts of different reasons. The Bible, in lots of places, talks both directly and indirectly that God is great. Christians over the centuries have consistently described God as great. I wonder, would you genuinely describe God as great this morning? Do you actually believe that God is great? And if you don't think this morning that God is great, because there'll be a number of people here, quite a number of people here, who wouldn't be able to go that far as to say God is great. To quote J.B. Phillips, we will struggle with the idea of wanting to follow God or to worship him, to give our lives to him, to sing to him, to study his word, to seek his purposes for our lives. Putting it more bluntly, what's the point of faith in a God who's not great? What's the point of having a faith in a God who's not great? If God isn't great, then he's clearly not worth worshipping. We're in the the presence of human greatness, uh, and whether that's perceived or real, our natural reaction is one of praise and worship and response to that. Whether it's the most beautiful painting, whether it's a successful athlete like Usain Bolt, or something that's stunning of some kind. But I want us to have a brief look this morning at a couple of the passages that we looked at to look at God's greatness. And how do we get a picture of what's at the heart of God's greatness? Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visitest him? I wonder whether you've taken any time to do what David did in these verses. Actually, just to take some time to look up to the skies and consider the vastness of the heavens. In David's day, it must have seemed impossible on a beautiful, clear evening to consider the sky, the vastness of them, to actually go about counting the stars that were part of the sky. Describes that God's hand span is enough to mark off the heavens. God's hand span is enough to mark the vastness of all creation, the wholeness of creation. Our minds obviously struggle to comprehend a bit. Astronomers and many other people spend their lives trying to make sense of the vastness and the greatness of the creation before them. It's so big creation. If the distance from here to the sun, for example, is 93 million miles and was presented by the thinness of this paper, if that thinness of the paper was the distance from here to the sun, then actually it would require 25 yards of paper on top of each other, 25 yards, which is probably from here to towards the back of the church, to actually represent the nearest star. If 93 million miles is that, then that's the distance, 25 yards is to the nearest star. They're vast. The heaven, the, the, the kind of creation itself is vast and huge and big in the heart of a God who's big too. And there are so many stars in our galaxy. Those of you who love astronomy and love some of the kind of uh, study of it will realize that if you counted, for example, the stars even in our galaxy, 
If you counted three a second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take you a millennium just to count the stars in our galaxy. All the stars in the universe, 100 trillion years. Yet God's hand span marks them off. God's hand span marks the enormity of the universe off. Those of you who love some of the science thing may be aware. In 1983, there was a very very well-known book that was written called The Intelligent Universe by a British astronomer called Fred Hoyle. And as a way, not a Christian, just an astronomer, but as a way of trying to make sense of the universe, the sense of the order, the beauty, the creativity at the heart of this universe. He said this, he said, this is how it feels like in all the discussion about thinking that it's all random, that the universe is random, has nobody behind it. He famously says this, a junkyard contains all the bits and pieces of a Boeing 747. They're dismembered and disarrayed. There's a junkyard just full of all the pieces. And then a whirlwind happens to blow through this junkyard. And what is the chance that after that whirlwind has flowed through, the fully assembled, ready-to-fly Boeing 747 is standing there? The answer is negligible. If a tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe... For a huge number of scientists, the idea of having an intelligent designer goes make absolute sense. And for Christians, we believe that's found in God. That we're not here by chance. We're here because of a creator who created us. That we're, in, that we're designed and, and by an intelligent creator, a great God who reflects in his creation, his creative love. He created us. His creation speaks of the creators. We point back to God because of what is created. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. God's greatness is shown and demonstrated in his creation. But how do we understand this greatness beyond the understanding of the vastness and the beauty and the wonder of God's creation this morning? If you have out in front of you Isaiah 40 on page 724, I'm just going to quickly go through this. Isaiah 40 is one of the most beautiful passages about the greatness and the majesty of the God who it is we worship. Nothing and no one compares to the greatness of God. What we see at the beginning in in verses 1 and 2, God's greatness is shown in his mercy. God isn't just a distant God. He's a God who's merciful and comforts his people. He cares about us this morning. He cares about Ava Rose. He cares about me. He cares about you. He's not just this distant cosmic God. has a deep, emotional, overflowing concern and love for his creation. It's a deeply strong and powerful word, overflowing with feelings of concern for us and for our lives. Remember, Isaiah's cried out because of seeing the the insensitivity of Israel and warned about judgment to come. He's proclaiming judgment. But God's love, God's love for us, God's love for his creation has never weakened. I come across so many people 
who believe at the heart, that come across day by day by day, harshness and judgment and criticism in their worlds, in their homes, thinking that their weakness is a thing that someone will just prey upon again and again, that people will take advantage of you. But God, God comes to us with comfort and mercy. He comes with forgiveness and he's tender towards us this morning. We then see God's glory. Isaiah says the time will come when the glory of God will be received in such an unmistakable way that all the people will say it together, the glory of God is not dependent on our human response or whether we respond to God's greatness. God's great, God's glorious because it's who he is. C.S. Lewis famously said in The Problem of Pain, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness over the walls of his cell. God is great. It's who he is. It's glory. It's his nature. It's his person. It's what he is, and it's who he is from beginning to end. Thirdly, we see God's eternal nature in verses 6 to 9, and also later on at the end in verse 28. God is eternal. He stands forever. He's a source for life and hope this morning. That's what baptism is all about. God's life and God's light, eternal life and eternal light come to us unlike people and words who, who although they, they carry the image of God and we have ultimately the flowers that fade for a short while. God is eternal. The alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. Fourthly, we see in verse 11, we see God's gentleness shown. God treats his people with the same tenderness as a shepherd displays for those looking after his flock. Remember, a shepherd and a sheep was an image that those in biblical times would understand and readily identify with. It's what they lived, they saw all around them. God is gentle with us. It's safe to draw near to him today. Our lives are in greatest need so often of his light and his warmth. Will you draw close to him in response to his love for you? Fifthly, we then see, which we've talked about in Psalm 8, God's creative power, the creator who is at the center of the universe. Creative master over all that is creative and powerful with it. Sixthly, we see God's wisdom in verses 13 to 14. God knows and understands all things. God doesn't need our counsel and our advice. So often I think we think that but we're in constant need of his wisdom in our lives for it to enable us to live well. The writer Robert H. Schuller observed saying this, he said, any fool can count the seeds in an apple, but God can count all the apples in one seed. When did you last ask God's help for your life? When did you last ask for God's wisdom? Were you trying to do it on your own? Just trying to live life on your own, in your own strength, your own gifts, in your own will. Seventhly, we find God's sovereignty. All the nations are but a drop in the bucket, as the sand as the scales to God. The Lord is enthroned in the circle of the heavens, we see in verses 21 and 22. 
God spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. God's rule and God's reign is far beyond us, us who are simple people, the created. We are God's servants, not the other way around, as we often seem to think. Isaiah 40 leads us towards being people who worship God and to seek to do his will. And then eighthly and lastly in this bit, we see God's uniqueness. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. God simply cannot be compared to anyone or anything. Poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, God's gifts put man's best dreams to shame. Or to put it more simply, only God can make a tree. We see in Isaiah 40, spend some time, go in, read it this week, if you're struggling to understand how God might be great, what it is that makes his greatness and how it looks like. But you see in this the character and the nature and the person of who God is. He's merciful, he's glorious, he's eternal, he's gentle, he's creative in power, he's wise, he's sovereign, and utterly unique. But the question might be then, if that's who God is, why am I who might believe in that God? Your belief in a God you might not be able to say very clearly. Why am I struggling so much in my life? Why am I struggling for God's perspective? Why am I struggling to make sense of my own life? Corrie ten Boom famously put it this way. She said, let God's promises shine on your problems or your challenges in your life. Let God's promises shine on your life. On the circumstances you you face today that means you're consumed by shame or guilt or fear or anxiety, concerns about relationship or money or health that seem too great for God and for you. Have you not known? Have you not heard this morning? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And if you're here this morning feeling faint or weak, he gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will be faint and weary, and the young will feel will fall exhausted. But those who put their trust and wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. This morning, whatever situation you find yourself, whether you find yourself very distant from God, you feel you're close to God, or you're whatever it is you, maybe your greatest need is actually to understand and to experience again something of the greatness of God. God is great. As we pray for Ava Rose, as we pray for each other, that we'd know more of the greatness of God that is who is sufficient for us in this world. Many of us can attest to different times in our life when we've sat and thought, you know, the answer to all my problems as I'm sat here today is, do you know, if I just had enough, a bit more money 
everything would be fine. You know, if I just had the promotion that I really wanted, then it would be fine, my life would be great. If only the politicians would just sort everything out, then the world would be fine. If only medicine could come and sort all my medical problems out, then the world would be fine. Or only if I really had so much power to overcome all the problems, if self-help was the answer to all the world's problems, then everything would be fine. But maybe Scripture says again and again that actually our greatest need this morning, our greatest need is to grasp afresh the wonder, the glory, the majesty, the power and the greatness of the living God. Our response to a God who is great in Scripture is always seen in wonder, in worship and amazement. Remember as we come here today that God's greatest gift to us was also given in himself, his own son, Jesus Christ. That in his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we can know God's greatness for ourselves. That that God is no longer distant, but is present with us. Jesus conquered Satan, conquered sin, conquered death itself, so that we we could have that life eternal. The world would be united again to the God who is great. Amen.